Christ, I pray God, send down the grace of the Holy Spirit upon us and open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to an knowledge of the gospel. Without a good and merciful amen, be friend of God, and to be sent up glory to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, down to and unto ages of ages. Amen. amen. So, we're just going to enlarge a little bit on the story of John the Baptist because we commemorated the beheading of John the Baptist on Saturday. And uh, Father Mircea covered a bit of it, but I'm going to rephrase some of it. And uh, I don't know, in, you know, in, in, in Serbia, on this, that feast day, we put all the butcher knives away uh, so you can't see them. So you can't cut anything with the knife on the Sunday of beheading of the day of the heading of John Baptist. And the worst thing you can do is cut ahead of cabbage on that day. <laughs> That's, uh, in Serbia, they used to put the knives under something away on that day. But uh, I, I remember my, my father did that also. But uh, it was a special way of remembering the day. The same in Romania, Malika. In Romania, they, you know, the Maliga, they use a little rope. Like oh, yeah, thread, I should say. Yeah. And, and they, they, yeah. they don't you, cut you, it. You know, the prairie Romanians who came in the 1890s, early 1900s, they thought it was sinful to cut Mama Liga with a knife. You yeah. always had to cut with a string. Yeah. You had a special, string, yeah. a special stick you could only stir Mama Liga with. You couldn't use it for anything else. Also in Moldova, on this day of beheading of uh, uh, John the Baptist, is prohibited to cut the head of the watermelon. That's a tradition. But anyway, on the, the feast of St. John the Baptist, <coughs> he was preaching across the Jordan because that little strip of land belonged to uh, Galilee. And he stayed in Galilee. And only later he came across into Judea and started preaching some. But uh, the, the, the Thing with between him and Herod was a little more complicated because Herodias was Herod's half sister, but she was also Philip's half sister, so Philip shouldn't have married her either. <laughs> and uh, so this was a, a double uh, violation of the law, marrying your half sister and also your your brother's wife at the same time, and uh, so that it was would be very upsetting to a lot of the Jewish people, the believing Jews. Uh, it was a, kind of a scandal to them. But the other part of it was that uh, a king of Nabatea uh, had, uh, what's mine, Aretas, had invaded Galilee before, and he burned down the city of Sepphoris, which was the old capital. You know, Herod built one named it for himself, but uh, Sepphoris was the old capital of Galilee. And this story really expands because people always think of Nazareth and Cana, some dusty little town in the middle of nowhere. But that can't be true because, first of all, uh, Nazareth had its own synagogue. Mm -hmm. Only a very rich town could have its own synagogue. So Nazareth was not a poor town. It wasn't a poor place. And uh, not only that, but it said Christ came and read from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, to have a scroll of the scripture that some very rich person had donated it. I mean, you had to be, to, uh, to have a scroll of the, of the Old Testament, any of the books. They, to have Isaiah, they must have had more. 
at least the scrolls of the prophets. And so it meant that somebody there was very rich, or a group of people were very rich. So they must have donated the scroll to the synagogue. So that tells us right away that there's something special about Nazareth. What it was was Nazareth and Cana were both what we call suburbs of Sepphoris. And at the time they were re rebuilding the city of Sepphoris after it had been burned down. And uh, the scripture doesn't call Joseph a carpenter. It just doesn't say that. It says that he was a craftsman. In Greek, it's as plain as day, he was a craftsman, not a carpenter. You think of some poverty-stricken little carpenter standing there building milking stools or something. He wasn't, he was a craftsman. And uh, not only that, but there was, he was married into a priestly family because Mary, or her, her, uh, her, her Aunt Elizabeth, it's, usually they say cousin, it was her Aunt Elizabeth, was of the uh, course of Abiah, of the priesthood. And uh, her uncle was, uh, was a priest in the temple. I mean, Zachary was a priest mm -hmm. in the temple of the incense, and he served by course. So this was a priestly family, and uh, a lowly carpenter wouldn't be married into a priestly family. It just wouldn't happen. But Sepphoris was also a priestly city. A lot of, of uh, priests and rabbis were trained in, in Sepphoris. And many of the images that Christ gives in his parables, like when he talks about, actually, the Pharisees, it doesn't say they're standing on the corner of the street. It says he's standing in the arcade, making long prayers for a show. And Sepphoris, Center City, was all arcaded all around. And of course, they were rebuilding the city at the time of the childhood of Christ. And Joseph was probably a craftsman who went to work in Sepphoris, the rebuilding of Sepphoris. Uh, so that's why the, the two towns were wealthy in the first place. So we've got a whole screwed up picture somehow of what's going on here. And uh, the, the uh, fact is that there's another almost startling thing. If Christ's father was a poor carpenter, Christ couldn't have read from the scroll of Isaiah because he wouldn't know how to read. You know, that, that class of people weren't taught to read and write. And Christ was very educated. He could read the scroll of Isaiah. So he came from a family that was a little bit higher ranking than a mere carpenter. And uh, doubtless they were some relatives that lived in Sepphoris before it burned down. Well, they were rebuilding the city at the time. And <coughs> they, after Aretas and Nabataeans had invaded Galilee, they wanted to reach a peace treaty. And the way they made the peace treaty was for uh, Herod to marry the daughter of King Aretas. It was a, a treaty marriage. You know, women were just used as things in those days. I mean, they weren't really people. They, they buried them off for a treaty or for somebody who's a wealthier family to step up a notch. And uh, anyway, Herod was married to the King of Aretas' daughter. We don't know her name. Now, when, when uh, Herod wanted to marry Herodias, Aretas' daughter became a little bit frightened because she thought, okay, if she wants to marry somebody else, am I going to meet with an accident and die so he can get rid of me or get me out of the way? So she fled back to Nabateo, and her father was furious. Her father wanted to invade Galilee again, but only the Romans, Roman governor of Syria, 
stopped him from being able to invade. Otherwise, it would have invaded again. So what John the Baptist was talking about was a, a, a greater situation, because uh, in, it, it, in, in Old Testament times, you could have all kinds of wives and mistresses and concubines, everything else, but by New Testament times, you married one woman. You only married one at a time, well, at least one at a time. <laughs> Some of them were serial monogamous, you know. Like Herod the Great, he was a serial monogamous. He only married one woman at a time, and after he killed her off, he married another one. But he didn't. He was great for murdering wives. I mean, he could have been the patron saint of Henry VIII. But uh, it's, uh, anyway, this, this situation was very politically delicate. So John the Baptist wasn't only talking about, look, you can't bury your half-sister, especially when your half-sister is your brother's wife. Uh, you, you, and what, you're already married to King Aretas's, uh daughter. So what you're looking for another wife for? And this is a treaty wife, so you've got to treat it very delicately because a lot of political things hang on this. Well, the Romans sold, uh, uh, stopped Aretas from invading again. That's the only thing that stopped him. And uh, later, you know, Herod caused so much enough trouble for the Romans, they finally exiled him uh, to, uh, the, well, well, Gaul, what they called Hispania, part of Gaul. And uh, they, uh, Herodias did love him, though, right? because she went with him in exile. She didn't have to, but she stuck with him. And, uh, you know, we don't know what happened to Salome. Uh, Salome. And uh, that, uh, anyway, they went into exile. And uh, that, so the picture, the whole picture is a lot larger. Now, Herod had some re respect for John the Baptist. In fact, he wanted to see Christ because he wanted to see who he was. Um, but there was a, it was easy, and not so not so uh, difficult to convince him to be held John the Baptist as, as we're told in the story. It wasn't just Salome, it was also that John the Baptist was really creating a political problem for him because of his treaty marriage and wanting to marry again. And he was warning against all of this. So actually, I, I, I imagine that Herod was hoping something terrible would happen to John anyway. So it silenced him. Because, you know, when you're doing something you know is, is wrong, against the law, and even a little bit wicked, uh, you don't want anybody to tell anybody about it. You want to keep it a secret. And if anybody doesn't keep it a secret and you're politically powerful, you do something about it. So this was a whole picture about with John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, John the Baptist was the, the son of a priest, and uh, the son of a, a priestly family through his mother, Elizabeth. Uh, so it, it wasn't quite that easy to touch him, to lay hands on him. And what he was preaching was true. And uh, very often it's when you tell the truth that you get in trouble. You know, you have to tell political lies to keep from getting in trouble. So uh, he was speaking the truth in everything. And even some of the Roman soldiers they would listen to him and understand because it touched their conscience. If their conscience was open, if their hearts were open, they could hear these words and they think, yeah, that's, that's the way it is. That's true. That's why some Roman soldiers converted. Uh, you read in the 
later Gospels, how Cornelius and other Roman soldiers converted. And as a matter of fact, uh, some of several of the supporters, and even in Paul's time, uh, some of the noble ladies had, were supporting him already. And we don't see too much about the noblemen, but we know that he had a, a, a lot of noble following. Uh, we forget that Apostle Paul was related to the Herods. I mean, he was, I don't know how close he was, but Apostle Paul was, was directly related to the Herods. I mean, he says so himself in one of the epistles. So uh, this is, uh, this, uh, everything has a bigger story. And uh, when I hear uh, <coughs> Protestants sometimes preaching about it, I hear the strangest things, but we also have some pretty strange stories from these uh, fake writings that we don't accept. You know, there's something about Peter telling the childhood of Christ and Thomas's uh, childhood of Christ gospel and things like this. The stories that somebody sat around the campfire and made up. But uh, we, we get a, a really a false picture of what everything that's going on here. I, I, somebody asked me to go see a movie about Joseph and Mary's journey to, to uh, Bethlehem. I guess it was a Protestant-made movie, but it was shown, called The Incredible Journey. And I was to, to review it. It was kind of upsetting because uh, Joseph and Mary were traveling all by themselves and sleeping on the roadside on the way down. And in the first place, they wouldn't have had to wander across that kind of landscape because there was a Roman road that went down, a fairly good Roman road. Also, a, a couple would never travel alone. They traveled in the caravan, and you just waited until the caravan came along so they could travel together with a group of people. It was very dangerous on the road alone. Nobody would have traveled alone like that. So we, we get so many shady types of these stories, and instead of looking at history the way it was, and the, the life, the kind of life of the people and the country the way it was at the time gives us a quite different picture of it. But uh, I just wanted to enlarge a little bit on the story of John Baptist and what, what this, this whole picture was about. I mean, it was a politically delicate matter. Uh, it involved the Romans. And uh, in a way, John was trying to avoid, he realized that it would be a big slaughter, and, you know, Masses of people would have been killed if Aretas had invaded again. Well, he was concerned about that as well. So that's one of the things he was trying to head off with his preaching. And at the same time, he was preaching what Jews could understand very well what he meant by repent. Because, uh, you know, and be baptized. Because th this was something the holy prophets had told us before. And it was uh, in, in the understanding of the Jewish people about washing yourself for purification. You know, you would enter, if you entered the temple, you went through a purification ritual of washing yourself. And that's why when at the wedding of Cana, they're talking about the vessels holding water for purification. Because people coming to the meal would purify themselves first by washing themselves. So that was something that the Jews understood very well what John was preaching. It wasn't something strange. Uh, and that's why they responded. Like thousands of people came out to be baptized by John going to the water with it. So that's uh, 
it gives us a different perspective on the whole on the whole scene of it. And uh, you know, we, we we know nothing about. It, it's interesting that in the life of Christ, we know nothing about the childhood of Christ, except he appears to us at, at each stage of human development. Because at the, at the birth, and the next time he appears, is uh, at about 12 years old when he can appear in the temple. That, that was when he was old enough to testify before the law. And then in later years it would be called a bar mitzvah. They didn't have bar mitzvah at that time, but he came of age. He had 14, he could serve in the military. They didn't have, they, they didn't have teenage years in the old, old world. They didn't have childhood in the old world. You were able to walk, you went to work in the field. You know, you'd be three or four years old, you're out working in the field. Uh, in fact, pregnant women on the, it would break water out there harvesting wheat sometimes. And, uh, and nobody got away. But at, at 14, you could serve in the military. At 13, at 14, you could testify before the law courts. So you're already an adult when you're 14. That's why people ask, did John really write the book of Revelation? Because he would have had to have been very old, at least in his 90s. Nobody, there's nothing to say John was born in the year 1 BC. In the first place, John must have been a very young man because he wasn't married yet. Anybody who was, wasn't married yet was very young. Or he didn't have, you know, he had trouble buying a wife. He didn't have any sheep or anything to trade for a wife. But uh, uh, if he wasn't married, he was very young. So, you know, John may have been 16, 15, 16, when he was called by Christ, he would have been an adult in, in that culture. Because he was probably only going to live to 30 years old. That was life, life expectancy in those days, but 25 or 30 years old. You had to get married when you were 13 or 14, so you could raise your children before you died. That's, uh, my grandfather was 14 when he was married. So life expectancy at that time was about 35. Well, unless you irritated some of the Turks and your lifespan was shorter. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, you know, we don't project ourselves, try to project ourselves into the world the way it was. And we're guilty also, but sectarians are guilty even more of trying to transpose the life of Christ as if it was in the 20th century. And they think of it in 20th century terms and never think of what life was really like in those days. But that's uh, something we, we need to stop and pause because we miss part of the message when we try to do that, try to falsify the, the life of Christ. It's the same in the Old Testament, you know. Unless we give consideration to what life was like at that time and what society was like at that time, we can still miss part of the message. So every story in the Old Testament, they're not all true stories. They're Jewish stories. They're, they're, they're teaching us a point or a, something very specific. You know, it's like, I'm not supposed to talk quite so long, but it's like the life of the prophet Jonah. Stop and think what, what Jonah's called to do. Now at the time, Judaism didn't exist at the time of Jonah. Judaism didn't exist until about 500 as a religion. They were Hebrews. They weren't, they weren't Jews yet. Jewish religion was founded during the exile into Babylon. And uh, because they brought everything together into a system, 
and that's when religion began. That's called Judaism is because there was no Israel. There was only Judea. So, uh, but anyway, in the time of Prophet Jonah, the Hebrews were very insular, and they, they didn't allow foreigners to even uh, worship God. If you're not one of us, you, you, know, you can't come. So God tells Jonah, remember the Ninevites were the most hated people on the face of the earth at the time. We have testimony from the Babylonians, Persians, and others how intensely hated Nineveh was. So God just comes to Jonah and says, look, I want you to go to the most hated people on the face of the earth and tell them I love them and I'll, I'll welcome them to myself if they will come to me. Now think about it. Here's the most hated people on the face of the earth, and God says, I love you, and I'll, 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 my arms are open to you. I'll welcome you if you'll come to me. And just repent. Uh, so that's the main part of the story. The part that we miss because we're worried about big fish, sea monster, whale, whatever, and uh, we miss the, the real point of the story. That uh, God was there for everybody, for the whole world. So, and, and it's Christ said he came for the, he came for sinners, not the righteous. That means he came for us. You see, if, we're, if we claim to be righteous, we're in trouble because Christ didn't come for us. <laughs> he only came for sinners. But uh, anyway, that's all as far as I wanted to go today because I've got to join the Georgians. But next week I'd like to discuss. I begin to discuss some of the New Testament prophets, and we have to start with Agabus because it's mentioned in Scripture. But the fact that Agabus is called a prophet in Scripture lets us know that yes, they're New Testament prophets. Hermione, the daughter of Philip the Deacon, one of the adversary physicians in the icon, is also a prophet, a prophetess. And uh, you know, we have people like Saint Cosmos of Bethlehem, who was celebrated a week ago and St. Andrew the Fool of Constantinople, mm -hmm. and uh, several others who are notable, genuine prophets. I dare say the Holy Fathers were prophetic, maybe, you know, because they, they didn't, they dogmatized by, through prayer and contemplation, they didn't dogmatize by rationalization. But they, they were in deep prayer and contemplation when they, when they exposed the faith to us and the teachings, you know, uh, uh, explain to us what the symbol of faith really means. So, and, and the apostles were certainly prophets. So uh, we have to discuss prophecy, what it means, and why the New Testament prophets. Uh, and, uh, in fact, Saint Anthony the Great, uh, Saint An uh, Athanasius the Great, says, and surely the prophets, surely the apostles were also prophets. <laughs> so uh, we have to, uh, we have to look into that a little bit. To understand our faith better. So, you know, we had a bunch of prophets during the last year's election, <laughs> and woe well, and other their prophecies came true, because of course they were trying to be fortune tellers. That's all they, all they were. They had no, no understanding of what prophecy meant. You're, you're not just a suit there. You know, you're something else altogether. Anyway, we'll talk about it next week. It is truly me to call thee blessed Theotokos, ever blessed and most pure and the mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, ever glorious beyond compared than the seraphim, without corruption thou givest unto God the world, 